Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is Shouse in the House. I have with me someone who needs absolutely no introduction for my audience. This is Ron Coleman. And uh, for those of you who don't know, he is a lawyer. He works for the Dillon Law Group in New York. Um, he's a pretty spectacular man. I've followed him for a very long time on Twitter. And it's funny because originally... I followed you because you were just quippy and and smart and funny, and I really didn't know nearly as much about you as I should have before. Um, I know, right? Um, whenever about me, it's amazing. <laughs> whenever I originally, when you reached out and and I I booked you to come on the show, one of my friends, uh, his name is Stephen. He's obsessed with you. He's read your blog, every single one. Like he's your biggest fan in the whole world. Oh. And if you're not friends with him, you should be in real life. He lives in New York. Um, he uh, he's oh, like, dude. I've got some, I've got some articles. I'm gonna send you. You need to ask him about this. You need to ask him. I'm like, dude, I only get an hour. I've got a limited amount of things I can ask him. So I'm really, really incisive though. I, I'll, you're, you're, not, you're gonna be amazed how quickly I can answer. Any question about anything I've ever written with about any topic, and I have written about every topic because if your readers, if your listeners have not yet picked up on this, I'm extremely humble <laughs> and self facing as I should be. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so let's start with why you should not be humble, actually. And I'm going to start with like, I guess maybe for me, what was your claim to fame? Like what I, what you are known for, which is your Supreme Court case with uh, the slants and how huge this was in the trademark world and the First Amendment world. So I would consider myself an absolutist when it comes to free speech, certainly with regards to the government's inability to interfere with my ability to speak, express myself, and assemble. And so I would like for you to kind of talk about that case just for the audience. Some people may not know uh, Cliff's Notes version from a, a dumb girl in Indiana. So the, he had a band. It was an Asian-American band. I wasn't in the band. <laughs> I did have a band, but not since the 80s. Okay? <laughs> um, the band wanted to trademark their name, The Slants, which, gosh, man, the humor in that is great anyway, right? Well, and... right. I mean, it's something that, that is known. It, it is a concept called reappropriation. Right. So you took a nasty term or you made a slur up. We, the target of the slur, are going to reappropriate it, repurpose it, and make it a point of pride. You call us slants, we're going to, yeah, we're slants. Yeah. In your face, we're going to be slants. We're going to be queers, whatever the case may be. So they wanted to, to register their trademark. Right. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said, no, you can't do that because it may disparage, it may be a disparaging. And and, and I was like, when I first read, you know, into the case, it's like it, the premise is ridiculous. How do you look at someone who is of that nature and tell them they can't use 
a slur that's been used against them? Well, there's a good answer to that. First of all, you have to be aware that they were following the law at that time. They're, they're, the, the Lanham Act, which is the trademark statute, actually prohibited the trademark office from registering any trademark that was disparaging, which probably made a certain amount of sense in the late 1940s, but it wasn't meant as group disparagement. Um, that was, there was, this is not some kind of proto-civil rights statute. Um, but your point about, well, someone himself is a member of a group, how can you call it disparaging? Remember that the idea behind reappropriation is to acknowledge that it was disparaging. Sure. Also, we can't take the position that the person, if a person is a member of the group, he can do it. But someone who's not a member of the group can't do it. Because now we are vetting who can receive a certain privilege from the government, which is the privilege of having a trademark registered, based on their ethnic um, identity. And what if he, what if someone is Asian American, but not really Asian? What if he's only one fourth age? All of a sudden we're doing the Nuremberg laws for right. trademark registration. And there's another problem, which is that Simon Tam, the leader of the band could get his trademark registration. And if, if the PTO would have said, well, you're Asian American, so it's okay. He could have then, uh, assign that registration and all the rights in the trademark and all the goodwill to Archie Bunker, to, to whoever, whatever biggie right. you want to choose. And what will you do then? So, and in fact, one of those things that I always joke about is I, I, I said to Simon, you know, if you just want to get the registration without changing the law, we probably could do it because their refusal is premised on your being Asian which makes because slants is not like a word like other slurs it's actually a word in the english language so we could make it seem like it's you know there are a lot of trademarks that are registered that have the word slant in them so yours could just be you know slant spar and grill and there's a picture of a bunch of diagonal you know whatever sure and the registrant we, we could make the registrant thurston howell the third or some you know some person with a nondescript name and then they could assign it over to you. But I have a feeling that you're looking to accomplish something else here. And you said, you're right, you're right. It's not really what I want to do. So you're asking the right questions. We took it to the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, we appealed knowing we would have to go to the Supreme Court to win on the ground that the statute itself, which prohibited registration of trademarks that were disparaging, was unconstitutional, that it constituted viewpoint discrimination by the by the government that they that, and not only viewpoint discrimination but also content-based discrimination that they're going to decide which trademarks are nice and which are naughty and that might be something that in the 1940s didn't sound like such a crazy idea but by 2000 and the teens when we started this process there was nothing like a, a meaningful social uh, consensus on what kind of things you can and can't say. First Amendment law has come such a long way since those days, and since the last time any court seriously considered the the the, uh, the statute. So we ultimately won. It was it was really we just had to do everything right and have the right case. 
the Redskins were in trying to, and they succeeded because of our success. Uh, they were trying to salvage their trademark at the same time on the same under the same uh, argument, but theirs was not the right case because we now going back to your earlier point, we had the guy, we had the guy who himself was the Asian American, sure. a much more politically acceptable way to deal with this statute. Now, by the way, the Redskins ended up changing their name anyway, right. which you as a and that absolutist will appreciate reinforces the idea that the government you don't even need the government to do this right choosing of winners and losers the market will do it because in order to get a trademark registration you have to use it yeah in the u.s system you have to use it you can't just register it ultimately trademark rights are earned by use so if you're going to use something that the market won't let you get away with using you're you're not going to have you, you're going to either get bricks through your window or you're going to go out of business and essentially that's that's what the redskins were facing so for all the fuss that went on around them they took a knee but long term it had some massive ramifications like you think about like a drop in the water and the ripples that come across like what you were able to accomplish is massive so I know you're not a prideful man in any way, shape, or form. No, you have no, no you're, exactly, no, the, you're the most thing, humble yeah. person I've ever known. <laughs> but realistically, like that's a huge thing. And so as somebody who is who is very adamant about the First Amendment, like I am very appreciative that there are people like you who do oh, no, go fight there, there for those things. There, there are oh, well. There really is. There, uh, God threw away the mold after <laughs> creating that. I think that. But there are people who do similar things. Yes, I agree with you on that. But like, yeah. me, come on. there are people who make, people like me usually, oh, uh, you made me cry. Tired, okay. So there's obviously they're not, you, you might think that they're like me, but no, I appreciate that. I mean, I do think the case is definitely still being cited in opinions because it, it clearly did stand for something other than the very, very narrow issue. And it, you know, unfortunately, didn't have the kind of ripple effect that I hoped it would have, because, you know, one of the things that the opinion does get right, I think it got most things right. I don't think it got everything right, actually. But is that the Constitution, at least, doesn't recognize a category called hate speech. There's no such thing as hate speech in First Amendment law. I was kind of hoping that the greater world would say, well, everyone is not bound by the First Amendment, but this idea that there's really no way to usefully describe some speech as hate speech is probably a good idea for anyone who values communications and freedom. That was a vain hope on my part. I, it, only, that it really was not long after that the social media censorship and the government's active and heavy-handed involvement in political outright political censorship really kicked in especially from you know 2018 until until today sure so that kind of transitions us into the discussion of the first amendment in general and where you see that playing out so that you mentioned there's no such thing as hate speech 
it's something I've preached for a really long time. I'm like, you may not agree with what someone has to say, but from the leak, and I think this is the other thing, people conflate free speech as in like you and I versus the government and me. The government cannot compel my speech. Now, you as my employer, you as my friend, you can say to me, yeah, I don't want to associate with you anymore. I don't want you with my company. I don't want you, you know, like there's a total and complete difference when we're talking about the constitutional right to free speech between people and the government. And I think people conflate those two things really frequently. They do. That's right. Uh, But what people who make the point that you have just made sometimes miss is that, in other words, that was a common thing for people to say when people like me would complain about censorship by Twitter, by YouTube. Say, hey, they're private companies, man. You know, you're bro. You're, the minute you're, they took a dime from the government, they weren't a private company anymore. I don't know whether they're taking dimes or not. I, I, I mean, it's not really dependent on that because the government buys and sells with everyone in the world. The problem here is that the government ended up infiltrating these organizations uh, and placing officials at the decision-making process or opening special channels for them uh, for expedited treatment. Censorship. And what they did was they they coined this this word, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, um, misinformation. That this is about, we're trying to, to protect the world from misinformation. Well, so they shifted the discussion from opinions and disparagement to, well, look, we're only talking about facts. Nobody's in fact, listen, the law prohibits you from fraudulent statements and from Yeah, I look forward to all the media organizations being shut down then at this Misinformation point. is a made-up word. Mm-hmm. I mean, all words are made up, but this one was made up fairly recently. There's a term called disinformation. That's where you purposely put false information into, you know, into the conversation in order to deceive. There's also a word called misinformation. Someone is misinformed if they think they know about something, but they don't. I do not believe that there was a a meaningful usage for the word misinformation 10 years ago. Misinformation is a, and this is, you can, this is Ron Coleman's novel insight. Misinformation, maybe it's a portmanteau. It's a combination of two words. Disinformation, which has this terrible propaganda, you, you know, disinformation is what the commies did. Disinformation is, is a big brother. Uh, and misinformation is a mistake. Everyone, people are misinformed. Most of us are misinformed. I, I, we all of us have incorrect ideas about something. Sure. They made up this idea called misinformation so that they're not quite accusing you of purposely lying but they're saying you're you're passing you're passing on things that are really haven't been vetted by official truth yeah like you know things about covid (laughs) things about masks things about boys and girls not being boys and girls whatever the top subject might be now or, or about elections so if somebody says the elections uh, are not secure. There are really problems. 
And a government official says, well, that's disinformation or that's misinformation. That's misinformation. And it's harmful to the electoral process because people won't have confidence. They might not come out like this really attenuated rationale that we're protecting democracy by restricting inform, uh, you know, statements because it's not really true. And how do we know what's true or not? Well, the very people who are implicated in whether or not it's true will decide whether or not it's true. What could go wrong? Nothing ever. Everything's gone wrong. It's been it's been awful. And if it weren't for the fact that Elon Musk, who is not a perfect person, and Twitter is not a perfect platform, but if he had not bought Twitter two years ago, because remember, he didn't only affect Twitter. He he by opening up that letting air into the system, letting light into the darkness on Twitter, every other channel has had to respond in some way. He is an historic figure. So, Ron, the when Elon Musk took over Twitter and he removed the election interference policy, YouTube banned me from YouTube for three weeks, took away my monetization. Like, I, all of this stuff happened, right? Because of a video that I did with Redo Voting, which they do, like, the... Um, QR code secure voting systems. And I did an episode with them and I played devil's advocate the entire time and argued against their product and forced them to defend it on the episode. And YouTube took that video down, banned me from the platform. When Elon Musk ended his election uh, policy, YouTube reinstated my video and removed the strike off my account. This is incredible because I've been saying what you just heard me say so many times, but I've never, ever come across a, because you know, I'm talking about a sort of an, you know, an impressionistic. Sure. But you're telling me cause and effect. That's amazing. Yeah. We were just, this, I'm using this excerpt. Excellent. Yeah. Um. So. And, and I mean, fully reinstated my account, even like my warnings, they took all of it off because there was another video that got taken down where I had filmed a debate that was taken, like a protest that was taking place at one of our local health departments. And there was a woman who was arguing with me about mask efficacy. And I looked at her and I said, the only line on the video that got flagged was where I said, Masks are ineffectual against COVID-19. It explicitly states that on the packaging. It's, it, it states it on the box. That sentence got flagged and I got a warning on my account. Because that made you a grandma killer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. Elon Musk, you bring up Elon Musk. Let's talk about Twitter for just a little bit and what those what the ramifications of that are. No, it's not a perfect platform. No, he's not a perfect man. I don't think either one of us would make that argument. Um, and I have been frustrated, especially here recently, something has happened algorithmically and that we could talk about that offline. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that right now, but but whenever I hit any kind of benchmark, I, I like in the fall, I was gay. I was, when I'm gay, when I'm, when when I'm not being messed with, I gain a thousand followers a week. When I'm being messed with, I move sideways for months at a time. Yeah. So I just hit 240, and now I'm spinning and spinning and spinning. And it's, listen, 
And why me? And I mean, what, what I don't understand is that I'm not the most dangerous conservative on Twitter. No. Oh, I'm plenty dangerous. But, I, you know, why does Jack Posobiec, my friend, get to zoom past a million? What is right. Two now, right? And Ron Coleman is not allowed to, I, I mean, I should, if they had not been screwing around with me, I would, I would certainly have half a million followers by now. Sure. I don't like, I just want to know what's the reasoning. What's yeah. the reason? Where's the trigger? Show, just show me, show me what I'm doing wrong. That's forcing your system to limit me. Compared, and... compared to others. Compared Correct. To others. Yes. I, I think there's a couple things for me. I cuss a lot. Like it's, it, I know, right. I have a horrible potty mouth. It's absolutely atrocious. So I think that what that immediately does is it triggers that not safe for work policy. And I think that you stop showing up on people's computers that their IP addresses are at their work offices. I think you stop showing up during normal work hours because that's, you know, the prolific time that people are utilizing Twitter. And so it's only, I've noticed if I post at midnight, I get way more views than if I post at noon. And so there's a part of me that wonders if they're like, okay, she's part of the late night crowd. We got to wait and put her up later. And I'm not even, but the porn bots, like there, there's no problem with them. And I'm like, well, how does that work? Like, uh, anyway, I don't want to take away time from our conversation, but let's talk large scale. You start, you're starting to see uh, Europe is starting to really try to influence the power that Twitter has here in the United States. They're passing legislation that's forcing Twitter's compliance. So unless Twitter splits itself in half and has a European division and a U.S. division of their system and their software, they're going to have to start complying with European law. And so how do you see that playing out with Musk? Do you think he's just going to be like, you know what, fuck you, I got fuck you money. Like, I'm just going to pay you off on these fines and I'm going to run my program the way I want to. I don't think he can do that. I don't think he has the resources to do it long term. No, I don't think anyone does. And and, and also his investors, I mean, he, I believe, and this is just based on my perception. I've never spoken to the man, um, but my perception is that he is driven by mission. But on the other hand, he does want to make this a profitable business. And so do his investors. Right. So you can't just write off Europe. And I've been writing about this since well before Elon. Well, because the issue of global, uh, you know, extraterritorial censorship affecting what we Americans can see is, it's a troubling one and it's a complicated one. It's part of what living in a global world gets us. I don't know. I mean, I I could posit lots of interesting um, ways that you might go about fixing it, but I don't know if they're technologically feasible. Um, you can spoof IP addresses. I mean, and part of the problem is, let's say that you are comfortable with a certain level of um, censorship. You and I aren't, but let's say that someone is. I, I'm probably more tolerant of it than you are. I'm, I never describe myself as an absolutist. Um, but in Europe, in, in the UK in particular, 
they have some really silly, silly laws. Uh, let's say you, that you could tolerate that nonetheless. Um, what do you do then with China and Russia and, you know, and despotic countries that want to not just, they're not just worried about messaging, they're worried about actual promulgation of information. Right. They don't want you reporting on what's going on in Ukraine. They don't want you reporting what's going on with, with, the, with the Muslims in China. And they tell you to, that those, you know, if, if those kind of tweets are going to keep up, we're going to, you're not going to be allowed to use Twitter in our country. Um, I don't, you know, I think you can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah, I, th I think that that X Corp, which is a client of our firm, uh, will. So I, so I have to speak carefully, but I, 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 I didn't I, realize that, Ron. I apologize. Not to apologize. This is this is just my little opinion. I'm not speaking on behalf of the firm or on behalf okay. of X Corp. And as far as I know, in fact, I'm sure that the work that, that we and Anticipate doing for them in the foreseeable future. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. But the point is, okay. I would imagine that what they'll have to do is decide what's what's the world that we're going to serve, and how can we do our best in that world. And we're, and we're just not going to be able to worry about, you know, about China, you know, I'm, or you know, whatever or, or whatever the case may be. You can't have it all. You, you know, it, it, you got to you got to draw a line somewhere. So your question was about Europe. I mean, they, you know, Europe itself is going through massive cultural changes. Uh, they have ignored certain truths about what's happening to their social structure and the, you know, the effect of their policies on their, uh, on really the uh, viability of countries that, had identities that are rapidly losing those identities. And the implications for that process are far greater than what happens on X. Yeah. You know, they implicate who are our NATO allies and what are their policy desiderata and who are, you know, it, it's, this is, this world has gotten complicated and it's, it's always going to get complicated, but the, the situation these countries and our country have put themselves in is so was so unnecessary and so stupid and so obvious that it would go this way to anyone with his eyes open from go. And yeah. it just goes to show you how ideologically blinded people can be when making decisions for uh, you know the for millions of or hundreds of millions of people. It's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, look what's going on with immigration in this country. Yeah. Well, and it, I think it's, you know, you, you start making decisions rather than based on logic. In fact, you make decisions based on emotions, right? Like, I of know, course. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. You're right. You're right. It's emotions. But unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit more cynical here. It's not, it's about an appeal to emotions. It's about virtue. Yes. Okay, yes in order to attain political advantage or to to obtain or retain power because in fact the people we're talking about don't give a rat's ass about the people they claim to be protecting 
It's not beneficial to these immigrants, to their families, to their children, to allow them to die in the desert, to, you know, to, to, to drown or what, you know, they're not better off in any possible way, but they're wrecking havoc with our system. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to shift gears just a little bit. I want to talk about almost anything would be less depressing than the direction (laughs) we're going in. Well, I don't know. We're going to talk about AI for a minute. So you are in intellectual property trademark. Uh, I read an article yesterday. There is a man in China who used AI to write an entire book. And that book went on to win a really big award. And so my question to you is, how do you see AI works factoring into the world of intellectual property and trademark? Because you don't actually own it. You didn't create it. So how do you see that playing out in the future? I um, I don't know. I will tell you that you know, you, the way you first described the situation, and everyone's talking about this and similar issues, a man used AI to write a book. Okay. So he used, there was, there is an animating hum, human intelligence behind the process. How granular does that process have to be at the composition stage. I mean, we're talking about angels on the head of a pin type stuff. These are decisions that in all probability should not be left to the courts. They're policy decisions. They should. The problem is that legislature, legislatures no longer can function to make intelligent policy. We had during the Trump year, an entire four years where one political party simply made it its only goal to vote against anything that would be proposed by the Republican Party. You can't expect a body that operates like that to make policy. But under the constitutional order in our country, decisions about the extent to which AI compositions should be given intellectual property, and we're mostly talking about about copyright here, although I believe it could also apply to patents. I mean, you know. Yeah, what if it moves into like a CAD system where an AI creates exactly you could you know right. a, an engine or something? Yeah, right. So, so right, and and you have you have you, you have macros, and you have you know you, you have applets, and you have routines that you can that a developer will you know. Uh, make part of the process of the creation of, you know, of a widget. The protection of those kinds of, those kinds of um, inventions, if they're inventions at all, does become the subject of of very expensive and very interesting and far above my pay grade. Yes, far above my pay grade. I'm not a patent patent lawyer and I'm not a technologist. I am for an old guy, someone who's very comfortable with, you know, the internet and with with technology, but all things being equal, you you will find much better informed people to answer questions on that topic. Well, I, I just, I thought I'd ask only more for your opinion, more than like your legal expertise, but I also, from the perspective, like 
the software developer could say, well, you wouldn't have that book if it wasn't for me. So I have intellectual rights to that product that you just got from my software that generated it. Well, look, as a general rule, software patents are right after business process patents, which software patents, I believe, are kind of, are kind of, um, they're extremely hard to get and they should be partially because of what you just described. Um, And be like Windows, you typed your book up on, on Microsoft Word. I have rights to that. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. Right, right. I mean, you know, I mean, again, you have the questions of authorship, of invention, of originality. Um, there's a concept in patent law called um, the prior art. When you file an application to patent an, an invention or process, you have to disclose the prior art. You have to say to the patent examiner, you know this, I see you're nodding. You say to the patent examiner, here is what the technology up until this time could do it goes up to here here now is where we take it the right here's our contribution and what the patent examiner then does is determine whether a skilled practitioner of that art whether it's software development or you know whatever it is that the invention applies to diligently utilizing the tools that are available in that field would eventually that's called the the obviousness bar it doesn't mean that someone else already invented it but it means that if someone had had tried to invent it they would have and you can't you can't be the only person to say you know i was the first person to put a a, an eraser on the end of a pencil so I now get the no. I mean, really, if you think about it, there was that was actually kind of an obvious. Now some things are only obvious in retrospect, right? But that's part of the fun of patent law, and I did find it fun, but it, it got extremely technical, and also um, the the the. I mean, I, I did patent litigation. I was never a patent lawyer, but changes to the patent to patent law and to some of the procedural aspects really made it. Uh, cost prohibitive to practice in that area unless you were surrounded by a lot of people who really knew what they were doing as patent lawyers. I just didn't want to get involved or stay in. Yeah. So just a quick aside to let you know, at one point in time, I thought I had like the greatest idea ever. Like I was ready to file for a utility patent. I'm like, I've got this. So my daughter stuck a popcorn kernel all the way up in her nose and we went through three different tools at the pediatrician's office to try to get it removed, but it was like behind the actual nasal cavity. So we had to go to an ENT doctor where they finally were able to remove it. And I was like, okay, this can never happen again. So I, I took a a little drill and I drilled holes in my popcorn bowl and they were just the size of the popcorn kernels. And then I put like a little cup underneath of it. And so then you pop the popcorn, you shake the bowl, and all the kernels fall down in the cup, but the popcorn stays up at the top. You mean the unpopped kernels? Correct. Yes. Yes. And that's what your daughter stuck in her nose. Yes. Yes. And so... Well, why did she do that? Because I don't know. I don't know. Because she's crazy. So... Um, 
the part of it, obviously. What could be more fun? Right. And so then you have, for the people who like to eat the unpopped popcorn kernels, you have your little bowl of your unpopped kernels. And then you have the safe bowl for the kid to not choke or chew or break a tooth or whatever. There, and there are people who eat the unpopped kernels? Yes. Yes. The things I've learned already tonight. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, we're Hicks. We live out in the middle of nowhere. You city folks don't know. That's like a, a delicacy. We, you put a little bit of extra butter and salt on it. And you eat the unpopped kernels. It's ridiculous, really, if I'm being <laughs> honest with you. But um, okay, so I want to talk completely shifting gears now. No, no, but you didn't finish the story. I interrupted you. You you thought you were going to Oh yeah, I thought I had the greatest and, idea ever and then some dentist had already come up with it. Oh, and it was prior art brought. Someone had a Yeah. Ready. Yeah, and I was I was so disappointed. I was I thought that I was just the smartest mom in the world at that moment and I been. sure was not. Um okay, so I want to talk January 6 cases and I think you had a couple of these cases so I want to be careful and respectful of that fact. I'll tell you if I can't answer something. You can ask whatever you want. Okay. Um, so I, specifically in the, in the implication of the first amendment, that's why I want to talk about this, right? So the halls of Congress on the day of the certification were open to the public. They were not closed. The halls of Congress are only closed like two days out of the year. It's Christmas and I can't even remember the other day. Like it's, it, that's it. You can go in there. It's the people's house for a reason. So I like just first and foremost, I would like to like just clarify that. Now, I was under the impression that you have the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's that's that is your right. And I feel like that right was violated by the government officials who prohibited these individuals from entering the Capitol building. Now. I am not condoning violence. Don't be breaking the windows. Don't be beating people with flagpoles. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you hadn't have tried to prevent them, we obviously see they just peacefully walked through the hallways, you know, maybe carried a lectern or two. Not a big deal, right? So my concern is these sentences that are being doled out by the government, uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. Well, did they? Because you fucking certified the election. So I don't see how that was an obstruction of the official proceeding. You guys did it like an hour later. And the sedition, treason, all of like these really trumped up charges that are coming in pretty much just because you were like, Ron, they're, uh, Enrique Tario wasn't, he was in Baltimore. And Enrique, he's Spanish, not French. Enrique. Yeah, okay, I, I apologize. So he was in Baltimore. He wasn't even in Washington, D.C. And he has received, if I'm correct, the worst sentence of all of them. Ray Epps was in Washington telling people, we're going in the Capitol. I don't even want to say this because I shouldn't. But by the way, we need to go. You know what I mean? Like it was just. If there was anybody who was inciting violence or whatever, that man got at what, a year of probation and a five hundred dollar fine. 
I don't understand. So I need you to explain to me from a legal perspective how this is happening. In a how in a just society are these sentences being issued when they they weren't even present for the event? Well, you've answered your question. This is not a just society. These are political prisoners. These sentences are tyrannical. There has been an absolutely horrific and stomach-turning distortion of the judicial system. Prosecutors and judges have aligned themselves together against defendants. People have been sentenced for conduct that is not even prosecuted when it is done in the service of other ideologies. You're not missing anything. There's no legal justification for what we're seeing. It is an, in our law, I mean, not since the era of, uh, you know, imprisoning Eugene V. Debs for opposing uh, the draft has there been this level of politically motivated uh, abuse of, of the law. And it's an absolute horror show. And it, um, it has debased the entire system. And I, I myself have not, I'm not a crim, I don't do criminal defense work. Right. And we have represented some people in connection with certain investigations in the January 6th arena. But I am in close contact to, with a number of people who are much more involved. Uh, and they have confirmed everything that I'm telling you. It is a travesty. It is a travesty. And you, and I hope, I hope we see in our lifetimes, it'd be even better if it could be in my lifetime, but at least in your lifetime, the truth come out. And I'm less interested in punishment of the wrongdoers here, which which ought to come, but is a lot to expect. But I would like to see the system straightened out again. It is absolutely a travesty. So right now we're reading uh, the Anti-Federalist Papers and the notes from the Constitutional Convention for a book club that I run on Wednesday nights. And we just read the section uh, where they're deciding, they're you know they're debating back and forth on how the judiciary should be chosen, and you know I wonder you you wish you could be sitting in that room to hear these debates and these conversations going back and forth amongst these men who, you know, we talk about IQ declining or increasing or whatever, and it's like, man, when you read what these men were saying to each other. You just see how fucking stupid the people in our congressional halls, and it's just so disappointing. I'm sorry. Anyway. As a general rule, you're right. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we, we were reading this, and I, I wonder, because they don't really mention it much in the debates, the partisanship that comes in the judiciary now, whereas previously, you know, you think the moment that that robe comes on, 
whatever your personal political preference is, that diminishes. It's gone. It does not exist once that robe is on. You, To be a judge, I feel that you have to be able to shirk your personal political ideology. Otherwise, you are nothing but a corrupt official ruining a system that is supposed to to be the last bastion of hope for an individual that has been accused of a crime that is innocent of said crime. Your responsibility is to uphold the, the law, the Constitution. And if it has not been violated, you have to set that aside. And I feel like that is so far gone to the point where now we're like, oh, that's a Trump-appointed judge. That's an Obama-appointed judge. Who gives a fuck who appointed them? That shouldn't matter. It should just be a judge, period. It's a problem. Um, the I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just I get right, really I animated about I'll this. I'll give you some sound bites, you know, some, some, some ways of understanding the problem based on my experience. Um, the quality of the judiciary has declined markedly. A lot of the problems with what we're seeing are the result of the of the simultaneous decline of Congress. There are many ways that what we're experiencing now could have been avoided. There should never have been a district of the District of Columbia federal court. One city should not constitute an entire judicial circuit. And when that city is the District of Columbia, which is particularly unbalanced with respect to the rest of the country, you're really asking for a lot of trouble. We've got it. Um, so you have a really a contaminated district court that is in completely coterminous with a circuit court. So these people are hanging out together all the time. Um, they're stewing in the politics of, in the extremely contentious politics of DC, and they don't even realize it. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking they, I always see these tweets on Twitter, uh, corrupt, uh, Epstein list, uh, compromised. No, no, no. This is who they are. This is who these people are. They're not doing something they don't want to do because they're getting paid off. They are nomenclatura. They are, they are in their jobs because they, as a general rule, look, one thing that has changed markedly during my lifetime is the quality of the, of the federal bench. And this is true in all the major um, cities. It used to be that being appointed to the federal bench was a, an extraordinarily high honor that was reserved for very distinguished practitioners in the senior part of their careers and someone you know using numbers that don't seem to make a lot of sense someone who retired as a partner from a major law firm in those days and it was making let's say a hundred thousand dollars which used to be money so you'd go on the bench and take a pay cut and because you make 85 or 60 70 thousand dollars but you had already you had a pension and you had made a lot of money and you had a house on Park Avenue visiting New York as, as an example here. So you were no longer motivated by money and you were, and 
And also the, the government wasn't involved in so much political business. So you, you had very high quality people generally doing high quality work. Today, the most successful lawyers make millions of dollars a year. They're not going onto the, you might think, this is why I'm Ron Coleman and I don't have any money and I, because I'm idealistic, right? I would think if I made millions of dollars a year for even three or four years in a row, I'd have all the money I could ever possibly need. Right. And then I could do whatever I wanted. But no, what, people who make millions of dollars a year, what I've seen is that they tend to get very used to having millions of dollars a year. Right. They're not going to make more the millions bench. of dollars. They're not going onto the bench. So who is going onto the bench? Former prosecutors, former government officials, people who are not necessarily mediocre. People can choose public service for very idealistic reasons, but in many cases are mediocre. And plus, you have the effect of affirmative action. There are some judges who are so stupid, so utterly unqualified, people who, are, who have never tried cases, people who are not litigators, and they are put into these positions, again, because they are nomenclatura, they are guaranteed lifetime employment at $200,000 a year with very good benefits and exquisite condition, working conditions. Um, you know, you'll often hear judges talk about how hard they work, and many of them and do work hard, but not the way uh, not the way most hardworking people think of those words, and not under the kind of conditions that federal judges have, where they they have a roving room and a chamber and a courtroom and a staff and clerks. It's a pretty cushy existence, and the less intellectual grounding a person has, the easier that person often is to be persuaded to just do political things. Now, there are very high, there are very talented people who will betray their intellect in order to achieve other things for themselves, not to get paid off, not to, but rather they want to be popular. They want to be liked. They want to be heroes to the cause. A lot of changes, and I also and they will be here all night. But there is also a phenomenon: judges look over their shoulders now about what other judges are doing in a way that they were not doing before the internet. It used to be that when a judge made a decision on the, on the West Coast, you might not hear about it in New York for months. Now, the second an opinion in any kind of sexy case is issued, everyone knows about it. And what happened, I saw during the Trump challenges, which were not necessarily handled well, and our firm did not have the opportunity to, to handle them. I think we could have done better. Um, I mean, I was involved in some of the kind of grunt work, but judges who should have known better were following the herd. None of the judges up till now have considered any of these claims, and I'm not going to be the first one. Right. And that's, you know, it, it's great when you, when you have a judge who is not afraid to do that, but these don't, even ironically, even though these are people who don't have to worry about losing their jobs, et cetera, the social status and the acclaim and the opinions of their clerks and the opinions of their colleagues definitely motivate them. And there has been a real surfeit of courage in the judiciary 
as you very accurately put it, the judiciary was supposed to be the last best hope within our system, where the where because of the lifetime appointment, judges are cut off from the influence the influence of the mob and from and from worries about about losing their appointments, and it has not worked. The system has manifestly failed, and among those failures, the United States Supreme Court can take much credit for not taking cases on that it should have taken, for an incrementalist jurisprudence that has never, that has um, hesitated at every opportunity to make broad rules that can actually settle problems when it instead could rely on some technicality or some some nuance. Um, it's a mess. It's a real mess. And I, you know, so I want to say two questions to that before I move to the next subject. If if that if that sustains, if we continue with this, um, I don't want to say two tier justice system because that's very played out. But I I think that that's the only way that I can use to describe it. There are rules for thee and not for others, and so. Uh, if that continues to play out, the lawlessness is going to increase in that lower threshold where they're like, you're not holding anyone else accountable for this. I'm going to go do whatever the hell I want to. You're going to release me in an hour anyway. So I'm just, I'm just going to keep going and doing this. And so we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing what I would consider to be like the beginning stages of what will be a massive fall. If that's not reined in, and like, do you agree with that assessment or do you think that like, where is, how do we dial that back? Like, where does that? I don't know. I look, there have been a number of really critical moments when we began to accept this idea that prosecutors at any level, county, state, federal, could take the concept of prosecutorial discretion, which has always been a problematic concept, but one that we understood we have to live with because people are human, would leverage that into this idea that they will exercise veto power over what laws shall be enforced and not enforced. In other words, they will write out of the law certain categories of offenses that the legislature and executive have enacted into law, when that was accepted as a normal thing and the legislatures stood by while it happened and the executives stood by while it happened, that was the beginning of the end. And Soros and his people, to their credit, and never call these people stupid, they saw that this was a soft spot because of the level of discretion given to prosecutors, as well as their lack of accountability for conduct that they uh, undertake as part of their jobs. So how do we dial that back? I think if there would be some kind of legislative statement uh, at the judicial level in in a state like Texas or a state like Florida, um, that maybe would even begin to possibly put some heat on other states to say, that is not an appropriate um, exercise, of, exercise of prosecutorial discretion. You cannot make, as a prosecutor, policy decisions about 
laws that you don't like. That's I think yeah. that's a, 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 a small and and frequently overlooked area that I think we could make a difference with. Um, I don't remember what the second question was, so well, I'm going to go ahead and go. I obviously you're Jewish. I think everyone knows that. And uh, so, quick, just uh, qualifying story, real fast. Um. I think a lot of people mistake the fact, and this is more for my audience than for you, but that I am Jewish. I am not. Uh, just my uncle was Jewish, and he escaped from uh, Nazi Germany and then went on to be the CEO of Porsche. And That's so happening. in Stuttgart, Germany. So you escaped Germany, and then you went back to Stuttgart, and you became the CEO. So that's cool story. But the reason that I bring that up is because there's this vitriol, right? Jews run the world and they're, you know, it's all their fault. Everything that happens, it's all the Jews. And so my question to you is, so the argument that I make is, you know, I've always been the type of person I was raised, like, tell me no, tell me no, I can't tell me no, I won't. And I will tell you, fuck you. Yes, I will watch me go. Right. And so I kind of look at the entire Jewish people as that group of people, right? And so you tried to kill us. You tried to exterminate us. Fuck you. We'll take over your world. Like, that's kind of like how I see the Jewish people. Not not literally, but but figuratively. Well, I, I think that when you talk, when you hear people talk about the Bolsheviks and the large percentage of Jews in, in the early Bolshevik movement, and their involvement in murdering in cold blood the the, the family of the Romanovs, the, the, the Tsar and his family, that I believe is an accurate statement, that Jews in Russia had been treated like absolute shit for centuries. And these people were not religious, but they they certainly were out for, for vengeance. Um, that's a real crappy way to conduct yourself in the world you know our religion teaches us that revenge is god's business if you believe in god you know that you cannot have taken from you anything that god wants you to have and you can't take from someone else anything that god wants that person to have and vengeance is mine saith the lord everyone is familiar with that phrase but um in the rest of the world like you know I think it's fair to say that, like, I, I don't think there's that kind of, it's true that there were Jews that had that kind of attitude um, in the radical early days of the 20th century through the, you know, through the 50s. And, you know, you have scumbags like the Rosenbergs who, who were communist spies and, and, and they deserved everything they got and far worse. These, and to come to this country and, and uh, accept the benefits of living here and then be traitors to your country it is besides just being indecent as a human being yeah. it, it is an awful thing for you to to do when you are when you know you're a member of a minority that people are going to look at but there's also an historical trend of the uh, jews for whatever reason it is whether it's cultural or genetic tend to overachieve jews uh they we do have that attitude to some extent you know the word israel hebrew yisrael means he who who he wrestles he wrestles with God, right? Because 
because Jacob wrestled with the angel of God. Um, what a strange name to give to the, an entire people um, who are going to be, uh, you know, later on in history, given the law at Mount Sinai, which requires them not to contend with God, but to actually obey him in the most minute way for their entire lives. And yet that aspect of dialectical tension, that pressure, that pushing back, that is part of the Jewish personality and, and culture to a large extent. So, you know, I know, I know where you're coming from, but I, I would be, I think you're, 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 you're thinking about it is a very limited use. I think in the Russia context, it, it, it makes sense. But in the context of democratic countries, I don't, you know. It, it, well, less it, vengeful and more in spite of you. Like I will succeed oh, in spite well, of you. Well, listen, I'll tell you something. Um, used to be, and I used to work with people who had, had this experience themselves, that people would, there were Jewish people who went to Columbia University and other, you know, top law schools in the 40s and 50s and still could not get hired by white shoe law firms because they didn't hire Jews. And there were exceptions, but they were few and far between. What eventually happened, these Jews started law firms like Weil Gottschall and Wachtell Lipton. And, uh, you know, these great Jewish law firms that started eating the lunch of these white shoe firms. And that more than anything else was what brought down the walls. Um, that is what you're talking about. Is it okay? Yes. Yeah. You won't let me into your golf club? I'll build a nicer golf club. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> but, but, but not everyone, you know, not every minority has that sort of um, God-given ability to put its mind to getting things done. And sure. So um, this uptick, uh, Twitter is probably, uh, that's where I spend the majority of my time. And which is sad. Let's not, let's just, we'll edit that part out. We'll pretend <laughs> that I didn't just say that, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, the, the vitriol towards Jews, and maybe it's always been this way. And I'm just now recognizing it because people are getting more emboldened to say it. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you think that's happening and a little bit more in the grander context of things like with the Israel and Hamas situation, uh, you graduated from Princeton, correct? Yes. Yes. And, you know, you're seeing some of this college campus type situation. You came from an Ivy League university that now is, and I don't know if Princeton's guilty of this, but some of these Ivy League universities are, are allowing some pretty terrible things to take place. Yep. We've already talked about hate speech is not a real thing. So let them say what they will. But why do you think there's an uptick in it? And why do you think, okay, I'm going to leave Israel Hamas second. Let's talk about the vitriol first, and then well, we'll talk. Uh, so Israel Hamas has given permission to, by merely renaming anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, to make life extremely uncomfortable for Jews, especially if they evince support or even a failure to condemn the state of Israel. Um, there are so many factors that go into this. 
One of them is the fact that the universities have taken on a tremendous population of students from Muslim countries and Muslim immigrants for various reasons who have been taught anti-Semitism and who grew up in, 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 a, in an environment of anti-Semitism. And Jewish professors and administrators are weak and worthless and far more interested in impressing their friends at how liberal they can be and how how much they in a sort of Maoist struggle session mentality are willing to accept group guilt. Um, they are not people who have a um, meaningful Jewish component in their lives. They identify as Jewish. They, if, if they're much younger than me, they're better than 50% likely to be uh, intermarried. Their children are not Jewish. Being Jewish means very little to them. Being successful and being accepted uh, despite having a Jewish last name or being identified as Jewish is far more important to them. So Jews in academia have brought this on themselves to a great extent. And they, uh, there's just, believe me, we could spend an hour on this topic alone, but the Israel thing has merely given permission for the expression of what has been an underlying aspect of left-wing ideology, far more than right-wing. Look, there are, of course, there are right-wing anti-Semites, but they tend to be really on the fringes of things. And here's the other thing. I don't really care if people are anti-Semites. I don't care what they think. I even don't really care what they say. By the way, if they knew as many Jews as I did, they might be even more anti-Semitic, okay? <laughs> Just stay out of my face. Right. Don't attack me. Don't, you know, if you're going to condemn me, be prepared to get condemned back. And the same rules have to apply to everyone. So if there's going to be no hate speech, there's no hate speech. That also means no hate speech criticizing your stupid-ass DEI program or your affirmative action, whatever the case may be. That's not the way it goes. May. So there's we're so out of whack. And the Jews, by virtue of this, as I put it before, God-given ability to succeed in almost any environment you put them into, have brought onto themselves by abandoning God in the Torah and by abandoning a meaningful religious commitment that enables a person to prioritize what is important in life and what he's living for and what his purpose of living is, they have enabled a world in which it has become truly ugly to be a, a Jewish student or a Jewish faculty member, but also any white heterosexual and certainly male uh, in any of these environments the Jews are just the, always the most acutely affected by this kind of discrimination, but they are stand-ins for Western values, for Christianity, ironically. Um, and the, the, the problem here is that, well, there are many problems, but one of the problems here is that our institutions, including law enforcement, have made a decision to allow this sort of soft terrorism to take place on college campuses, 
on bridges and roads and tunnels and airports and in front of a cancer hospital because of the identities of who's doing it and who it's being directed to. It's only the Jews after all. Right. This flexing and these, these norms will be employed against everyone else. And there won't be a damn thing you can do about it. Yep. And I think that's the the really sad part of this situation. It, 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 I think, so now I'm going to touch on Israel Hamas because I think it ties into what you just said. But I'm a little bit running out of okay. time. So mm. let maybe, maybe, I mean, you can, you can ask me another couple, couple questions. You know, it's fine. But No, I was just run. real fast. I was yeah. going to say on the Israel Hamas situation, a lot of people think that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu should not be defending is they they think it's not defending themselves. They think that it's you're attacking Palestine, which what even is Palestine? But the the problem that I have is like they came into his country, they raped and murdered women, they burned children in ovens and shot fathers out in the yards of their homes. And what is he supposed to do? Not respond? Like, is he supposed to just sit back and let it happen? No one listening to us at this stage of the conversation, if if not earlier, has to be convinced of the absurdity of such a position. It's it's moral inversion. It is a level of Nazi-like um, calling black white and calling white black. You know, after Reichskristallnacht, in 1938, most people don't realize that the Jewish communities of Germany were sent a bill for the cleanup, for all the destruction they caused by being the targets of government approved and inspired and coordinated to some extent rioting by Nazi activists. The Jews were sent the bill. It's not new. It's not new. Um, last question. I want your election thoughts. Talk to me real fast. Just give me your, we just had the Iowa caucuses. So two things. Number one, do you think come November, Donald Trump is going to be the name on the ballot? And number two, who do you think, if you had to pick right now today, who do you think his running mate would be? I do think it will be Donald Trump. And who do I think his running mate will be versus whom would I like to see as his running mate? Give me both. I would be very happy to see Vivek Ramaswamy as his running mate, but I don't think that would be a good use of Vivek's talents. I'd rather see him as the head of some department uh, in the administration. But that would be my that would be my wish list in terms of what do I what do I really expect? We're in such uncharted territory. I just you know I I, I do hear some names that mortify me. Um, no idea, <laughs> it, it, no idea. Can't nail him down, everybody. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate. It. I apologize for going over our time slot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Will you please tell? This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it.
Oh, thank you. Will you please tell everyone where to follow you? I, I know that you have a blog. Are you still doing that? I don't really do the blog so much anymore because it was okay. mostly about trademark law, and I'm, I'm just focusing on that a lot less now. Look at look for at Ron Coleman on X. That's where everything really crosses through. I do have a. If you look up Ron Coleman lawyer, you must use the church term lawyer, or else you're going to get the bodybuilder. <laughs> do work out, but I'm not big Ron Coleman. Um, at Ron Coleman, I mean RonColeman.com or at Ron Coleman. Uh, you know, and I'm on I'm on all the platforms. But if you want to find me, you you're, you're not going to have to try. All right. Thank you so much, Ron. I appreciate well, you. Well, thank Everyone, you. thank you for tell tuning when, in. Tell me when I can, when we're going to expect to see this. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, this will go out uh, this weekend. So awesome. I'll probably edit it this e- evening. I, there's nothing to edit. I'll probably re- release it raw. So Excellent. Um, I, I'll have it out. I really, you ask very intelligent questions and you, and you, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to, uh-huh. I'm sure I'm going to use a lot of this, you know, in my own social media. Have a good night. I'm sorry that I I know that I wasn't really the person that replaced Elon Musk as your. No, uh, no, no, no. So uh, okay, I'll tell you. Yeah, Yeah. So it's Banksy, the (laughs) the street artist. Like I am obsessed with street art. Nobody knows that about me. Um, and I'll probably edit this part out because I don't want anybody to know that. Because hopefully I'll get him at some point in my lifetime. So. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!